the beautiful thing here, I got to I got to say that never did I dream when I approached the Exodus pattern that two, three years of research would lead to such a rich understanding of the Exodus pattern in the scriptures, a, an exit from an entrance into they can't be separated. But as of this morning, the beauty is we're still experiencing the wondrous privilege and pleasure of being in the book of Shemot, that's Exodus, for the Torah portion, uh, and the book of Acts for sermons. So I thought, Howard, what better thing to do than be creative, bring Exodus and Acts together to have their shared impact on us, and then integrate the information about the term three courses where it best fits. So reminder number one is simply that we're at a crossroads. And this is a time of shaking and sifting and sorting. This is a seismic graph of like an earthquake, an earthquake shake. And it's time shaking, sifting, sorting, in which everyone and everything is being exposed for who and what it is. And of course, we're all over the spectrum, but if we were to look at the far ends of the spectrum, then on the one side, uh, some of us, that is some of humanity, is part of the problem. And even problems that existed prior to the pandemic have been magnified and have gotten worse. So that would be true on the negative side. But on the far positive side, and I got to say I'm astounded at the number of stories I've heard on the far positive side because they're wonderful. I'm talking about families that said before the pandemic, we were just in the vortex of busyness and we took each other for granted. But now it seems we've gotten to know each other. I'm talking about like husbands, wives, siblings, parents, children. You know, for some, it was like very hard and very difficult. And then you found each other's weaknesses or idiosyncrasies and they got worse and magnified. But for many others, they worked through them. They got closer. It got better. And when, when this really began to happen was when, I'll use the term, when the lockdowns began. When everybody either couldn't go out or was afraid to go out and the whole world was wondering, where is this headed? What is going to happen? And at that moment, somewhere around six to nine months in all the lockdown in the world, there was this shepherd of a flock somewhere, he's not even known, who wrote this incredible blog post, and he called the pandemic a merciful dress rehearsal for the day of the Lord. And it was a biblical scholar that shared it. And because it was a biblical scholar who I know and who, who writes on uh, the history of Messiah, I thought, that's got to be an important post to read. So I read it. And I thought, wow, what an observation that it's a merciful dress rehearsal for the day of the Lord. And he said, why? Because what if suddenly that's it? Game over. Yeshua appeared. And now no one can change any longer. This is a merciful dress rehearsal for the day of the Lord. So I gave this imagery of a train track that cannot go. The train cannot go any further. I was really struck by this. But this whole idea of shaking, quaking, it begins right here in the Sinai account in Exodus. So we have Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because yod heh the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. 
through the shaking of God. And then we go to Haggai and we look at a, a few passages in Haggai. So yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, Yehoshua, that little grandson's name, son of Yehotzadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I'm with you. I'm with you, declares Yerevavhe of hosts, Adonai Tzavahot. According to the covenant that I made with you, this is Haggai 2.5, it really woodenly says, according to the word I cut with you. And we know that the Lord cuts a covenant. So it's so exciting to see, according to the covenant that I made with you, this is the ESV, when you came out of Egypt, my Ruach stands in your midst. Oh my goodness, this is part of uh, Jack Levison's work on the Holy Spirit before Christianity, where he showed that that uh, it, it's it's an Israelite origin of the Ruach, and that Israel came to understand that God's Ruach was with her in the Exodus. And my Ruach stands in your midst, fear not. Just drop dead gorgeous. And then we have, for thus says the Lord, Yodhivavhe of hosts, Yet once more in a little while. And we know timing with God. Yes, he's patient for millennia. But yet, yet once more in a little while, I will shake. Here's the shaking again. I will shake the heavens and the earth and then the sea and the dry land. And you all know that's Exodus imagery, right? The sea and the dry land. Even the wind blowing across the waters in the beginning of Genesis associated with the separation of waters is the beginning of Exodus imagery. It's the adumbration, the hint of the main theme, Exodus, as is the separation of the waters and the appearance of the terms there, dry land. So notice the presence of sea and dry land imagery, which is new Exodus imagery in that passage. But if you took the Hebrews 12 course, I'm sure you bathed in this, you get in Hebrews 12, 26, his voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, and now he's going to cite what we just read in Haggai. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So God is in the ministry of shaking, and his shaking is always designed to produce a profound outcome among his people and then for the nations. But notice the absence of the sea and dry land imagery in Hebrews 12, uh, which is final new Exodus imagery. And so Hebrews 12, 27 proves this. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that can be shaken. Remove all the things that can be shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Isn't that the beauty of the ministry of shaking? That what needs shaken can be shaken away and what cannot be shaken could remain. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And then you get the final point from this incredible writer of this book. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. And it's really, uh, as you look at the Greek, it's 
since we're in the process of receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. So that's why we always talk about leaning and living into it, because we're in the process of receiving it. You want to have a foretaste now, and you want to show the world a foretaste now. It's incredible. And the word is actually uh, the word, you know, the letter A in front of a word, like atypical, not typical, not able to be shaken. So an unshakable kingdom. That would be even better. Therefore, since we are receiving or in the process of receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us continue. Look at this translation, C-E-B. Let us continue to express gratitude. Let us continue to show gratitude to God for this inheritance. With this gratitude, let's serve in a way that's pleasing to God with, and then scholars don't know how to translate it. Is it with respect and awe? So we'll go with respect and awe because our God is what? Our God is a consuming fire. Got that imagery? Fire that consumes the dross. And so don't be offended that we used a a 21st century example like uh, Moby's video, Are You Lost in the World uh, Like Me, when we, when we showed this movie. I've seen it seven times now in order to uh, analyze every element of it. But the most striking thing that we hear from all viewers, and, and, and last night, like at 2 o'clock in the morning, I, when everything's silent, like no one's awake, it's dark, right? I just played the final scene again to get the sense of, you know, it, it, it's a spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen it, but it's just this, that everyone was caught up in the vortex of pop culture and everyone was just living for themselves and living large. And then they realize it looks like the end could happen. And at the end, you got this small group of people around a table who decided not to take each other for granted, but to make the best of the the short time they had left. And they went to dinner at the house. And they're all eating at the house, talking in ways that their eyes are open to what they had, to what they could have been, what they will never be. And then they are consumed with fire. It's riveting. And in many ways, it serves God's purposes at this time in history. Because just like that shepherd's blog, it provides us with a merciful dress rehearsal for the day of the Lord. Those that fight over the background meaning, like is that about climate change, they have missed the point. It's a chance to see the culture for what it's become. Ask yourself, am I part of the problem or the solution? And then thankfully, at least for now, we still have time, but the day of the Lord's coming. Which brings us from Exodus to Acts and takes us back to chapter 2, which we'll visit twice in the sermon. Here we have the sun. This is the New Jerusalem Bible version uh, for, for the reason of how it translates that word lit up in, in Greek and the purple up there, uh, epiphane. <clears throat> the sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the day of the Lord. There it is. Sam's teaching a course on it in term four. What is the day of the Lord? Is it positive or negative? And it says here, before the day of the Lord comes, that great and, and notice this translation says, terrible day. There's no confusing terrible, is there? You look at the others, right? It says, the great and splendid day of the Lord. 
You look at the two translations next to each other. One said terrible, one said splendid. Do those sound like, like variants of each other? Synonyms? Or is this two radically different understandings? And trust me, the one that says terrible uh, has leaned in the right direction. Because that word uh, in this context for the day of the Lord has to do with its strikingly sudden manifestation. Right? It says it'll come like a thief in the night. So you're not expecting it. You're not really diligent about it. It just suddenly happens. And that's why that movie is so powerful, because there's no time. It suddenly happened. And now you're forced to face it. It's it's just an amazing thing. So the context of Acts 2, where we get all those Jewish persons and proselytes from all over the world, uh, receiving that special pouring out of the Spirit promised in Joel, also references the day of the Lord. So it's the new covenant, new exodus, that prepares you for the final new exodus when Yeshua reappears. And then we have a cell slide because we say, wow, that's a complete thought. We take a breath and we come to reminder number two from our previous one. This is the uh, work of Leslie Ann Cornish. She does drop-dead gorgeous work about the exodus. Um, a great representation of God's people as a people, a community, together going through the Exodus. So we know we have a historical Exodus, and then a pattern emerged for all subsequent slavery to anything, crying out, that's one of the terms, you cry out, God hears you, he rescues you, and then the pattern continues. And I'm sure we've all had personal Exoduses. Do you know how I came to Messiah Yeshua? hot on the heels of a marijuana smoking session. I used to be a pothead, and somebody put white powder of some kind in that pot that night, and I remember when the bowl came to me, I looked down there and thought, that looks dangerous, but I just smoked. And I ended up in a very serious situation, and from there on in my life, I was a very lost, scared, uh, you know, we would say freaked out person. And that's exactly when a fellow 16-year-old shared the good news with me. That was my first exodus from sin, too. And so we talk about the new covenant, new exodus, that's already happened, and we need to push the envelope to be in it. And here it is. Clear out the old yeast or leaven so that you may become a fresh batch of dough inasmuch as you are unleavened. In as much as you are unleavened, you mean we need to live into what we're already constituted to be? Wow, how about we do that? Let's live into it, because that makes Yeshua's life, death, resurrection, ascension, sitting down at the right hand to inaugurate this, that does justice to that. For our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, that is, Messiah. That's our first piece. In the same book, 10 verses later, Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, that's a real different thing from the way it's talked about in religion denomination. This is about being in Messiah. They are what? A new creation. Straight out of Isaiah 65 and 66. You are a part of the actual new creation that's coming. You're in the inauguration of it. we got to live into that. It says the old things have passed away. Lo and behold, new things have come. So Paul himself 
will make a point that it doesn't matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, if you're not in the actual new covenant that's been inaugurated, you're behind the times and everything. Whether you're a Gentile and you're still lost in sin, or we're still caught up in the ways of the present evil age, even though we've professed Messiah. Or you've been a Torah-observant Jew your whole life, but you've got to get in the new covenant, because then it's on your heart. And then you're in Messiah. So everybody has to enter the new creation in its prolepsis. Nobody's left out. Torah is even intensified in Yeshua. You see that in Matthew 5 alone. And then Colossians 1.9 has to be a reality. It's 1.9 through 13 that we focus on here. Therefore, from the day we heard this, we do not cease praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding to live how? It's all about living, right? The proof of what we know and say we believe is always in the living. We need to live in a manner worthy of the Lord so as to be fully pleasing. Notice it's in every good work. Once you have trusted, once you have been cleansed, you're free to do righteousness. Romans calls it being slaves of righteousness instead of slaves of sin. Always doing what's rightly expected in all relationships and situations. Fully pleasing in every good work, bearing fruit, growing in the knowing. It rhymes. Don't read growing in the knowledge. Read growing in the knowing, right? You remember when you first met someone? Oh my goodness, I don't care if this is an irrelevant example. You can look it up, the king and I. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. You getting to know, hoping that you like me, and then eventually what? You are precisely my cup of tea. I mean, just look it up if it's too uh, 21st century. But you know what? I still dance around the house singing it to my wife. Why? Because it's such a joy to get to know God and Messiah. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and the one whom you've sent, Yeshua Messiah. So let us all be singing the big, you know, let us do, this would be a great uh, Hanukkah party thing or perm. We'll do a whole big version of getting to know you and we'll reappropriate it, right? Like I've told Yuri, are you here, Yuri? Or is he teaching today? I told him like, like the Jewish people, when the Zodiac system came out, didn't assimilate, but reappropriated it, said, you want to use the Zodiac system? We'll tell you, we'll tell you what it really means from the perspective of yod heh Yeah, unbelievable. Strengthened with every power in accord with his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. He's saying this to Gentiles, listen to this, who has fit you, you Gentiles, to fit, made you fit to share in the inheritance of the holy ones. He made you fit to share in the inheritance of the holy ones. The next translation down there says God's holy people, capitalized. Because they know that passage refers to God's people, Israel, and you got qualified to be a part of that as a Gentile. Unbelievable. But we, we read all of that to get us here. He delivered us. He rescued us. That's a Exodus word. From the power of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the son of his love. It has to be real among us that we actually got a kingdom transfer out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. Then none of our behaviors will be from this domain that we've been rescued from. And so we introduce this word, 
Please, Chris, tell Marseille I made this 15 times the size it was so it could be seen this time. This is X and Hadas. This is the road or path or the way out. And we asked, what do we need an exodus out of in our lives right now to be ready for the reappearance of Yeshua, the Messiah, in the first new exodus? <clears throat> I'm sorry, in the final new exodus. And we said the onus is on that, you know, is on us as individuals to answer that about our own lives. But in general, we also have to look at the real, hardcore, painful analysis of where professed Messiah following is. And we got to highlight two major things. It's painful. The second one is far more painful than the first. We said last time we need an exodus out of U.S. radical individualism. I chose this graphic because every marble is shining, different size. It, it's all over the top because it's radical expressionism of individuality in U.S. pop culture. And so this graphic uh, really does convey that. And in fact, the more extravagant your expression of your individuality, the more you are celebrated in U.S. pop culture. And that doesn't fit with uh, the kingdom of God and Messiah or leaning into it. And it's a, a radical individualism in which everyone does what is right in their own eyes, Judges 17, 6b. And we need an acidus a road or path or way into something else as we come out of that. So again, we apply it. What do we need an entrance into in our lives right now to be ready for the reappearance of Yeshua, the Messiah, in the final new exodus, and then individually what we need? And we say we must press into authentic messianic community, which is the exact opposite of radical individualism. You have to pay the price of radical individualism to get to this real community relationship. And I went back to a graphic I once discovered uh, for our children. But as I looked at it, I thought, hey, look at that's Marge over there with the white hair and the glasses. And look two up, that's Leroy White. And look down, you know, just this way a little, the second one up, that's Howard 20 years ago with his beard and afro. And if you look just less of that, can you see Janice Stewart? Even she saw herself. I didn't paint this. It's just that this morning I looked at this and thought, this is us. And now everybody will go home with the slide thing and go, can you find me? And the model for us of self in community in contrast to radical individualism is David. And it says about him in 1 Kings 15.5, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, not what was right in his own eyes. And he did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. So an egregious sin, but that it gets forgiven. And then he writes a psalm and he's right back on this page. So this is the model that is the opposite of radical individualism. And of course, as we move into this, we continue to go to Philippians, uh, the whole book, because it's such a model for how to do it, why to do it, and the encouragement to do it. And so only live out your heavenly citizenship. So you have citizenship in the kingdom of God and Messiah that's coming to the new earth forever in actual New Jerusalem in Israel. You have a citizenship there, and it's possible to connect with it and live it out no matter where you live. They're in a Roman colony, and the emperor is Nero. It couldn't get any worse. 
If they can do this and work it out, so can we. But it will cost you, you. If any person would follow me, let them deny or disown themselves and walk in the same road with me. So in a manner worthy of the good news of the Messiah, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I hear that you are standing firm in one spirit as one community, striving together for the faithfulness of the good news. Well, what I've done is I've interwoven the announcements about the MSI courses right into the sermon. And there it is. Healthy, whole, messianic community, February 16th and 23rd. Rediscover the relational beauty and power of the community of God and Messiah Yeshua. Find out what it means to be a self and community and members one of another. Recapture the reality of being the family of God. And then the description goes on beyond that. All the way through to and including the fact that this course was originally going to be something else because Paul, using a word group, invented a word. He coined the term for how to live in a way that's the opposite of climbing the social ladder in Rome. So that's what that course is about. And I chose a uh, contemporary communal uh, abstract graphic. And that brings me to the, the elephant in the room. What is the elephant in the room? It's the thing that is so painfully obvious, everyone knows it exists, but it's too uncomfortable and problematic to talk about. Not today, it's not. And I have to preface it by sharing Proverbs 27.5 so that both my tone of voice and what you're hearing here comes together to prove this. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. What it basically means, what this principle means, which is beautifully carried out by the ancient Israelites and the later Jewish people, is if I only tell you what you want to hear, that's the... But if I tell you what you don't want to hear, but you need to hear, then you are faithfully wounding the friend for their benefit. That is the spirit with which I share the number one problem after radical individualism. And it's this whole idea, you know what? Let's just not talk about religion or politics and then we'll all be good. Whoops. That is not transparency. That is not community. That is not dealing with the elephant in the room. It, it says it's a recipe for disaster. Uh, so Chris, here's where I'm saying that I think Chris's course can help here because in the ancient world, none of this is compartmentalized. It's all one thing. And it never has its source in the foreign nation. In other words, if you're an Egyptian group of Messiah followers, you don't have your allegiance to the Egyptian system and government first and then live out values of God and Messiah. No. And that's why Richard Borkham, when he wrote his book, The Bible in Politics, I mean, we couldn't wait to see what is a senior scholar in Scotland who understands the Jewishness of the New Covenant Scriptures. What could he possibly write in a book about the Bible and politics, and you open it up, and what do you think is the hinge of the entire book? I wish Peter was here. Leviticus. 
Leviticus is the hinge of this entire book, and Leviticus 19 is the big exegesis if you're going to understand uh, how to how to think about politics and religion. So we've had a lot of scholarship that's come out that has said we shouldn't be using the word religion anymore because it's been compartmentalized and it doesn't exist in antiquity, and all that scholarship is correct. So if we're going to use it, we should use it of what we did in, in reading and prayer and all of that. The term, if we're going to use it, should be for the robust uh, right and ritual that we do. Uh, because then that would be a good way of not compartmentalizing it because what is the purpose of that liturgy? What is the purpose of reciting those prayers to God? Uh, we'll see in just a minute. And so when you're the people of God, it's God and then later God and Messiah, and that informs your involvement in any kind of politics because the kingdom of God has what? Its own politics in contrast to the politics of any nation. And so we're arguing here for messianic community solidarity. Solidarity, it's like a word that appears in the New Covenant Scriptures. It's a holistic unity of interests, responsibilities, objectives, standards, values, and ethics in the community derived from the Scriptures. And that's how we live and we give the world an example of how it should be. What we don't do is marry it to the nation in which we live. And this will be the painful piece because everyone that's worth their salt is writing on it, but it's not being heard. We need an exodus out of civil U.S. religion. U.S. civil religion. What is U.S. civil religion? It's been written about since the 70s, but in the 90s, it kind of crystallized. And now there's a brand new articulation of it, and I've added to it, and this, I think, gets it done. What is U.S. civil religion or the Pax Americana, like the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, the Shalom of Rome? Does anyone know that the emperors of Rome were called Shalom makers? Yeah, they made their peace. We're not a part of that. And then there's a Pax Americana, and it epitomizes in a specific direction starting in 2009. Bear with me on this. It's a mixture of many or most of the following. Not patriotism, hyper-patriotism. Number two, braggadocious hyper-nationalism, that you're the greatest country the world has ever known, and then you co-opt the language of Israel for your country steeped in the lore of U.S. exceptionalism, that this is the most exceptional, this is the exceptional nation in all of history. Hyperpolarized partisanship, reducing everything to two sides and just being on one side. Militarism, consumer culture, mammonism. You know, you can't love God in mammon. Mammon's an Aramaic word that means money and possessions. Radical individualism, radical self-expressionism, radical self-sufficiency, insistence on personal freedoms over the common good, and overemphasis on personal happiness. Do you know that Joel Osteen's congregation and his ministry is now being referred to in a rock-solid work on the scriptures 
as happyology and an over-identification with pop, celebrity, and or entertainment culture along with a claim to faith in God and Messiah Yeshua. The epitome of this appears in the 2009 American Patriots Bible by Thomas Nelson Publishers, in which they write the history of Israel into the text of the Bible. And a soldier is compared to the suffering servant Messiah. And the community of the people of the United States is called the Church of God. Systematic theologian Michael Horton at Westminster Seminary calls U.S. civil religion Christless Christianity. We would call it Messiahless Messianism. Is there such a thing as Messiahless Messianism? To our shock, there is in the book of Revelation, in the letter to the ecclesia, the kahal, the community at Ephesus. I found this because I am always with Nina looking for the best art. Oh my goodness, the traditional menorah, beaming lights. And we heed the warning to the ecclesia at Ephesus. To the angel of the ecclesias in Ephesus write, the words of the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden menorot, menorahs. I know your works, your toil. Notice it's always, I know your works. It's what you're doing. Your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So they're doing some good. They're being encouraged like we should be. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you. Why is it imperative that in the succession of things that we've raised today, including the day of the Lord, a potential immediate cessation of everything and having to hold hold ourselves accountable, why is it so important to hear this last piece? Because of how sobering it is. I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. But if not, I will come to you and do what? Remove your menorah. It's so sobering. You'll end up a social club, but Messiah himself will not be there. So this will no longer be us. Oh, you should see the blues in this. Wait till we have a bulb replacement or a new projector. It takes my breath away when I see imagery uh, like this because it represents God's people in such a rich way from Exodus. So notice that it's, you've abandoned the love you had at first. (laughs) Scholars are always debating, is that the love for God? Is that the love for Messiah? Is that the love for each other? How about it's listed there in a vague way so it could be what? That's right, answer D, all of the above. Incredible. So what do we need? We need an acidus, an entrance into authentic Messianic community. And so we refer to common Judaisms in scholarship. That means set all the sectarian issues aside, all Jews treat each other as fellow Jews. And they negotiated their rights with the Roman Empire because they said, we belong to yod heh where we're worshiping him. It's like the 
the post-Exodus demand. We were rescued to serve Yodhevate. We're not serving you gods. And so they negotiated their rights with the empire. That is a model for us. In what ways do we need to be nothing like the nation in which we live and be a group of people that show the nation in which we live what is the kingdom of God, not confuse it as the kingdom of God. It's own responsibility to live out the Derek Adonai, the way of the Lord. And Yeshua called himself the way. So now the way of the Lord is in him. And so we are responsible for the way of Yodhei And then the ecclesia of Yeshua Messiah are models here, including the snippets we get in Acts. So unless I'm wrong, Chris, I, I thought your course fit here. The world of the New Testament is sweeping overview. And part of it says the authors and original hearers of the New Covenant Scriptures lived in a different world. Politics, cultures, ethics, worldview, theology, and needs of daily life were radically different from what we know today. As we seek to base our own lives on the words of the New Covenant Scriptures, we need to understand uh, the environment that formed the thoughts and expectations behind their words. I think they did a marvelous job of looking at the politics of the world in which they live and then said, we follow Yodhei and now Messiah Yeshua. We're going to live in this way and show this nation what the coming fullness of the kingdom of God looks like. We're not going to make the mistake of anything else. And then Doug's course, new birth, unjust suffering, and astounding hope, because those that really live into this suffer for it. You suffer for living this way. You're going to be criticized for living this way. Um, but there's built-in hope. And so Doug's course fits well here. An in-depth look at First Peter, it's theology, it's counsel regarding how to respond to unjust suffering in light of the living hope we have in Messiah. And he says we'll be highlighting five key texts that will help us answer the question, how shall we then live? Can't wait to get to them. And that's our second Sela moment. We have one more, the final new exodus. Um, it's, it's found in the words, uh, come out, come out of her, my people. Maybe you've seen this, maybe you've never seen this, but it's striking. When you take the original languages and you start to always inure yourself to the Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and you see what's there, there are things that come to you, you think, holy smoke, look at this. So look at this one. Come out of her, my people. This is straight out of Revelation 18.4, the apocalypse of Yeshua Messiah, 18.4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, ex el come out, come out of her, my people. Any system that has Babylonian elements, come out of that to be my people because Babylon's going to get judged. You don't want to be there to get her plagues. You get her plagues if you're guilty of her sins so that you do not take part in her sins and you do not uh, share in her plagues. Isn't it interesting that that's the actual Greek word that translated the Hebrew here? But look at this one, Exodus 12, 31. Guess who this is? Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, come out of my people. Who's this speaking? Pharaoh. Pharaoh uses the exact same term and says to Israel, come out of my people. How ironic is that? Do you think that's part of the uh, divine inspiration of scripture that this is here like this? I looked at this and was like, oh my goodness. This is as ingenious as what God does that Paul says, man, 
This caught me by surprise. This is a mystery. At one time, God picked a hard-hearted person, Pharaoh, and he capitalized on his hard-heartedness and let his heart harden in order to rescue his people Israel. And in later history, God reversed the process and caused some of his own people to become hard-hearted to rescue people like Pharaoh, the nations. It's a divine mystery. This, to me, is like that. He summoned them, said, come out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go do what? Serve yod heh vav -Hey, as you have said. Of course, he, he plays with them, but Exodus. Jeremiah 50, verse 8. Flee from the midst of who? Babylon. What's the Roman Empire called in Revelation? Babylon. Flee from the midst of Babylon and come out of. Same Greek word, translating the Hebrew. Go out of the land of the Chaldeans. And it says, be as the male goats before the flock. I think the, the net gets it right at the bottom. It says, be the first to depart like those male goats that lead the herd. <laughs> right? Rush. Rush to get out. Which brings us to the central point of the final new exodus in Revelation. Everybody's focused on other things, but uh, why would Yeshua teach his uh, disciples to pray a prayer that is supposed to bring the kingdom of God down to earth? If the main centerpiece wasn't, then the seventh angel blew a shofar. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Messiah. That's what we live for every day. We keep praying about it. We keep living and leaning into it. And we're waiting for the day. Boom. That's it. Day of the Lord. Game over. It's all now God and Messiah. It's become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. So you ask again, what do we need an exodus out of in our lives to be ready for the reappearance of Yeshua, the Messiah, and the final new exodus? And we again say the same thing. We need an exodus, an entrance into authentic messianic community. Did we, when we were in chapter 2 in the book of Acts, get a real sense of what, how easy this could be, the four things we could focus on that would make us unlike civil U.S. religion? and make us unlike the world, and people would want to know, wow, what's this about? Here it is. They devoted, this is the NAB version, and, and you can see why I put it first. We always look at what's in the languages, and then we put the English translations in the order. They do justice to what's there. Look at this. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. Thraskeia, the Greek word, is, is about devotion. It shouldn't be translated religion. It should be translated devotion. What are you devoted to? What do you passionately invest your time and life in? It's this. They devoted themselves to the teaching. The word trace K is not in this passage. I'm just saying that. That was a bonus. Okay, Skip. Great. I saw that you appreciated the bonus exegesis. <laughs> they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, apostolic teaching, and to the communal life. That's their translation and to the communal life, and to the breaking of bread, table fellowship, and it's plural, to the prayers. I gave you all the translations that pluralize prayer because the rest just say prayer. Let's, let's translate what's there. And then the CEB, the, the believers, that's a weak term actually, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community. A second one got that. To their shared meals and to their prayers. Their prayers, their prayers. They went up to the temple three times a day. They continued on in a robust prayer life, doing just exactly what we've done this morning. You have a great 
set of prayers. And as you read them, uh, they ensconce the values of them into the fabric of our being. Ensconce just means established. They, they become the fabric of our being. When we're saying them, we're saying them in a way that it's transforming us to become what we're saying. That religion, that ritual, that right, there's a positive use of the term. And save Thrace Kea for devotion. But their prayers, they're in the plural. And among them would have been the Lord's Prayer. So we even know from Acts 5.12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. They would come together regularly at Solomon's porch or portico. You know what we know from Acts? The Messianic Jews of the first century loved to hang out at the porch of Solomon. It's like you could, you know what I mean? You ever go to the Temple Mount and go, where are we going to meet up because you don't want to get lost? That's what they would say. Go to the portico of Solomon. So you know, isn't that exciting to know? That in the first century, the Messianic Jews hung out at the portico of Solomon, the porch of Solomon. And that's where they did more prayers. And likely among them was the Lord's Prayer. Incredible. And so that's just pray this way. Our Father who's in the heavens, may your name be sanctified. Didn't we hear that in the liturgy? As May your name be sanctified as it's sanctified in the heavens above. You make it happen on earth. You make the Lord's name great. He makes his name great. What you don't do is follow the way of Babylon, which is making a name for yourself. May your name be sanctified. May your kingdom or kingship come. May your will be done. Where? As in heaven. Indeed on earth. Could be translated as in heaven. Indeed on earth. Indeed in the land. Give us this day our daily bread. That could be the sustenance we need. That could be uh, uh, eschatological hidden manna as you lean into it. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then it's it's either, um, do not, look at the NAB at the bottom. It's a little cut off, but it says, do not subject us to the final test. Certainly do not lead us into is one of the most egregiously erroneous translations in the history of Bible translation. He never leads you into temptation. That is flat out wrong. Scholars are right to work it out. And then you can go all the way to uh, what I've done, which is also what Keener has done, and let us not succumb to testing, but deliver us from what? The evil one. We have to remember the evil one is going at it, and we must be delivered. I'm close. I'm close to finishing. Elenu. See, I have no idea, right? Sometimes you get worried, right? If it would be a football game, it'd be fine. But when it's a sermon, we always hear it. Howard, can you can you truncate that down for us? That's a tragedy of the present evil age having its impact on what should be the new creation. So I was just really struck with Elenu. You can, you can look at it. It's uh, paragraph two. It's the Barry Budoff translation that we use. And I wanted to focus on, since we trust in you, yod heh our God, may we soon behold the glory of your might. That's what we say, right? Oh, so many times that's what we close with. And then we read, when you remove the abominations from the earth and all idolatry is banished. All idolatry is banished. What is it that we are so invested in? God gets our leftovers. What is it that pales by comparison uh, to what we invest in God and Messiah? Removing the abominations from the earth, all idolatry is banished when all the world will be made perfect under the reign of the Almighty. Well, I think Peter's course fits here. Understanding the book of Leviticus and its relevance now. Look at this description. 
from holy rituals. Of course, we're, we're borrowing heavenly, right? I've worked heavily with him. We're borrowing from Jacob Milgram, greatest scholar of Leviticus who ever, who ever lived, and he's gone, so he's the scholar of blessed memory. From holy rituals in which values are ensconced, that is to say, established in the fabric of our being, to the chief summational ethic of loving one's neighbors oneself, come discover the facets of wholehearted, daily sanctified, that is, holy living. And that brings us to a final exercise from Acts chapter 29. Yes, Howard's laughing, so I know that he's exegetically sound. I was waiting for somebody to go, there's only 28 chapters, what kind of exegete are you? Uh, I was once on a team of elders in a congregation, and I was asked to do a teaching from the book of Acts. When I finished, one of the elders, the senior most gray-haired, one step away from a coffin, said to me, Henry, Henry, when you start teaching on Acts 29, then everyone will listen. And I knew what he meant. So I want you to just think for one second. This is our closing exercise. I want you to think of people you think made an extraordinary difference in the history of God's people, whether ancient Israelite, later Jewish, all the way through to Messianic Jewish right to this day. Who are people you can think of that made a difference? You think of them and you think, wow, that's, that's a contribution right there. To this, well, you don't have to say it. Now we're going to blush. Now I want you to think of your name. And why I ended in Acts 29? Because it's the chapter that's been written since 28 ended. And what I want to know is, if he does not come in our lifetime, what will the next books that are written say about our contribution? What will it say about how we handled the pandemic? What will it say about how we behaved as the true ones that know the one true God and the one whom he sent and how we handled U.S. politics? What will it say? You got to think of that when you think remove the abominations from the earth and all idolatry, idolatry is banished. Because I want this list back. I want us to think about hyperpatriotism, braggadocious hypernationalism, steeped in the lore of U.S. exceptionalism, hyperpolarized partisanship, militarism, immersion in consumer culture and mammonism, radical individualism, radical self-expressionism, radical self-sufficiency, insistence on personal freedoms over the common good, and overemphasis on personal happiness, all over-identifications with pop, celebrity, and entertainment culture, all of which contradicts the kingdom of God and Messiah and renders us oblivious of the final new. That should say what? Exodus. The final new Exodus. And that's our seller point. And uh, Chris, lest Marcy say, Henry, how dare you forget? I did not forget. Marcy's teaching this course. This is a woman that we bought 12 graphics from. Hanukkah, Purim, Modern Jewish Holidays a study of the two most prominent non-Levitical celebrations of Hanukkah and Purim, as well as an overview of other significant, mostly modern observances on the Jewish calendar. The aim is to put them into context and relationship to our understanding of scripture, prophecy, Messiah. Thank you for an ear to hear. Let's pray. So Avinu, we present ourselves afresh to you yet again and give you permission. We give you the freedom to do what you want to do with us, to bring us to the place where the community that we are fleshes out kahal and ecclesia in ways that make you smile and makes us useful in your 21st century history. 
And this we ask in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach. Shabbat Shalom.